0: Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy podcast. My name is Michael and I'm here tonight with Tom and Curtis and we are going to do a review episode of Forbidden Lands, the RPG from Free League League Press. Originally, it was going to be the Bitter Reach campaign, but after looking at the game, I realized there's no way to cover Bitter Reach without also covering forbidden lands first so this is going to be a two-parter that won't be together but eventually it'll be two episodes so with that out of the way let's meet our other co-host tom say hello to everyone
1: hello everyone it's it's tom um i'm so excited to talk about uh forbidden lands it's just it is a system that is near and dear to my heart
0: our special guest co-host for this episode is Curtis. Curtis, uh, is a frequent attender of Catacon. He's also a podcaster in his own right. So Curtis, hello to everybody.
2: Hey, everybody. Yeah, my name's Curtis. Uh, I'm on, uh, Split the Party podcast, uh, uh with a couple of friends. I made it to Catacon back in 2015. So it's fun to be on the podcast.
0: And, uh, when I had put it, sort of put the call out to like, you know, podcasting mutuals, like, Hey, we're going to do this review of Forbidden Lands. Um, your name came up quickly, so I assume you have kind of a history, maybe even a love for this game or for Free League? Free yeah. League? I keep saying Free League for some reason. Free League. Yeah, I've
2: got, my shelf is rapidly filling with Free League games. And, uh, it's, it's funny because, uh, Alex, who, who looped me in on that, we, let's just say we have differing opinions on this game. And there is a pretty vast, uh, diverse views in my game group when I brought this to the table.
0: Oh, excellent! Well, I think I think we've got a good core group of three because we all I think we all like it, but I think there's elements that we maybe like more or less, and certain things that we have stronger opinions on. So,
1: so much because I, you know, me when I like something, it's like I am so good at ignoring the flaws in something. I stand "Forbidden Lands." I'm just going to come out right there. <laughs> all right, get it. No bury the lead there.
0: So. <laughs> all right, so Tom, go ahead and take it away, sir.
1: Okay, yeah, so we're going to dive right in tonight. We're going to talk about the both the Player's Handbook and then also the Game Master Guide and really give you all a good idea of what Forbidden Lands is. So if you were to go to Free League's website and you were to look at the Forbidden Lands, the first thing you're going to see is a box set, and that is what is Forbidden Lands. It's a box that's going to come with a map, uh, like a little starter thing and about a legends and whatnot, but then it comes with a gorgeous Player's Handbook and Game Master Guide and this is what we're going to be talking about. So right off the bat, the what is Forbidden Lands, and it is a new take on classic fantasy role-playing. It's a sandbox survival game that really leans into the idea that your characters, and it says they're very clear about this, your characters are raiders and rogues and not heroes. So it's all about how to deal with the moral ambiguity of the Forbidden Lands. And Curtis, I think you said it so, when we were talking beforehand, you said it so, so well that it is a game that captures elements of the OSR, but then uses an indies system. Would that be correct?
2: Yeah. I, I, that's about it. I, it. It hits me in both of those sweet spots. It's
1: so good. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, when you pick up the Forbidden Lands at the Adventurer's Guide. This is the Player's Handbook. This is this is the key book right here for all your players. It starts off diving right into what is the Forbidden Lands. And I'm gonna, each of the chapters for Forbidden Lands starts out with this cool flavor text. And I've got to read the first one, this first one, because I think it captures what the Forbidden Lands is. It says, Did you hear the story of the Forbidden Lands? Beyond the mountains, beyond the mists of the north. Once it was called the Ravenland, our promised land. These days, strange creatures haunt those valleys. Beasts that should not be, for the land is cursed. And that's what Forbidden Lands is. It is you all as players going into this terrible place and fighting some monsters and probably dying. So, obviously, this first intro tells you all about, you know, what the RPG is, and we all know what an RPG is. So, Curtis, take it away, then. That second chapter, then, it talks about your adventurer. We dive into character creation.
2: Yeah, so uh who are you playing in this weird forbidden land? Uh, I was actually going to pull the same thing <laughs> that you did, Tom, there, and they start with a great little section where I'm just going to... Uh, the. the paraphrase it, but they, the the little opening text in that is just describing a dead character lying on the ground <laughs> that somebody found, just to set the seed of what you can expect for this game. Uh, so before you even start building your character, just a warning,
0: they might die. <laughs> oh, m- m- might's not even... It's just a matter of when.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so basically, uh, this game, um, as far as character options, is the next chapter, your adventurer... It goes through different kin. There are basically, I would say, a pretty typical assortment of kin. And this is the equivalent in D&D of race or uh, backgrounds and some other um, settings. So you can play humans, elves, half elves dwarves, halflings. Goblins. Yeah, get wolf kin, goblins. And <laughs> All forts. sorts of stuff. Yeah, I think that's the uh, full gist there. Um, what I will say is some of them are pretty interesting. In some of the tweaks they gave them, but I think we'll probably get more in depth than that in the game master half. Yeah. Uh, Cause there's a whole chapter on kin. But do you, do you have a favorite kin then? Oh man. As far as what they did with them. Now, personally, I'm always partial to playing boards. Uh, that's my go-to. But, uh, elves, I think, are probably the most interesting ones here. Ah,
1: that's a good choice. Elves are weird in this game. And myself, I'm personally, you know, I am partial to the Wolfkin because they're so cool and they're so edgy and they're so great. So, but anyway, continue, Curtis.
2: Yeah, yeah. They, the Wolfkin exist here in a weird, like everything else has connections to everything and the Wolfkin are just like, nope, they're crazy and murderous and live in the wild. <laughs> uh, so, so then you get into professions. Um, and again, this will be a pretty familiar list for the most part with a couple tweaks. So you've got your druids, your fighters, your hunters, uh, your minstrels, which are basically bards. Uh, rogues and sorcerers, uh, and then the two, uh, sorta different ones to me are the peddlers, uh, and the riders. Uh, so you've got one entirely focused on, you know, riding, uh, beasts. If you look at the, the cover of the box, it's this yes. big lizard thing, which I had one player, my fiance actually, who, uh, is immediately, she's like, I know that, that's, I'm riding that. <laughs>
1: That's, it's funny that you, you mentioned that, that box cover art is one of the reasons that I bought this game.
2: It's so good. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, Simon Stalenhag who did the art for, um, the Tales from the Loop too from Free League. He yes. just did the cover art. He didn't do any of the interior. Right?
1: Correct. He did the cover art. And then one of the other things which I meant to bring up at the beginning was Niles Golkinson is a legendary Swedish artist and a lot of us have seen his art before and don't realize it and that his art is everywhere in this book it is a very clear art style it's very it's it's known for its be it's it's inky quality and it's old school representation of fantasy elements it's just really cool and i think captures what the forbidden lands is
2: yeah uh yeah agree there although i will say don't go looking at the cover art of the box expecting to see that all in the interior. Correct. It's a very different aesthetic. Um, and, yeah. uh, yeah. So anyway, those are, so those are the, the professions. So you get to mix any, and they list, you know, that certain, uh, uh, can favor certain professions, but they go out of their way to say, you know, don't feel restricted to that. Um, and, uh, and that's the gist there. Uh, You guys have anything to add on those?
1: I I would just say that they are—I love what they've done with the professions in that—I think we'll get to it when we talk about talent. But just because you decide that you want to be a fighter or doesn't mean that you are locked into just hitting stuff. This game is all about giving you, as the player— I wouldn't say infinite customization because then it makes it feel really complex, but it really allows you to do what you want to do. So if you want to be a fighter who's also, you know, you're really great at cooking up some, some beans and hot dogs around the fire, you can do that. Like it's, it's, there's a lot of elements of this game that allows it to be very modular. And that's what I love about it. Um, I will say my favorite one is the writer. I love the idea of being I don't feel like any fantasy system really captures the idea of being a, a knight, and this does, and it's so cool.
2: The, another thing that I think is really neat is that the magic-oriented uh, classes or professions are uh, the sorcerer and the druid. Their uh, spellcasting isn't tied to any particular attribute, so you don't have to worry about, well, I'm a sorcerer, so I have to have really high wits uh you can actually have a strong sorcerer one of my players in my group uh Amanda likes to do uh strength dex wizards and i can i can confidently say this is one of the only systems i can imagine yes. that you could do that without like having to um uh you know hamstring yourself with a character creation choice
1: yes the classic strength dex wizard
2: <laughs> uh yeah, so, so then past there, uh, you choose age, which actually has an effect because if the older you are, the lower your, um, attributes, but you'll get more skills because your character, you know, while well, maybe isn't as strong as, uh, they used to be, uh, has, uh, some tricks up their sleeve now. Um, and I think you ex- get bonus talents too the older you are. Um, and, uh, you choose a pride, which is, uh, actually has a mechanical effect. Uh, where you get to roll an extra die, which we'll get into, I think, uh, later when we talk about the dice system more. Um, a dark secret, which is a fun role-playing decision, essentially, for your character. Uh, relationships all amongst the party, you choose gear. Um, one uh, one interesting thing, and this might be – this is an area where I know opinions could diverge, uh, is uh, one of the aspects in gear are consumables. Uh, so this is a game where instead of just kind of waving and saying, yeah, you guys have enough food for the uh, journey or enough water, uh, you're actually tracking in an abstracted way. Mm-hmm. Either of you like to talk about that in any more detail?
0: So, for example, you have food, you have water, and you have arrows or um, ammunition.
1: And torches.
0: And torches. And each of those will be given a rating which is associated with a a particular die, usually six, eight, maybe higher, but I think six and eight's kinda, kinda standard. And each time you utilize those, which in this, the day is broken down into four quarter days, uh, so you have like morning, day, evening, night, so you don't need torches during the day unless you're going into a, like a cavern, you don't need uh, food overnight, but you need it in other times, you roll the die that's associated with this rating, and as long as you don't roll a one or a two, you still have food. If you roll a one or a two, then your die steps down. So if it was a D8, now it's a D6. If it was already a D6, then you're out. So basically you, you keep rolling threes and higher, then you have infinite water. If you roll one and two, the first quarter day, even though you just left town, you could be completely out of stuff. And, and again, I'm going to jump in here just quickly. The game for me, and the two times I've ran it, is it breaks down into two very clear Parts. There's the exploration part, and then there's the interacting with, like, ruins and fighting part. And the fact that you need to track these things and there's a way to do it is is instrumental to the way the game functions. So if you're going to track food and water and torches and ammunition, I think this is a cool, fun way to do that. Uh, It sort of reminds me of Shadow the Demon Lord, where you don't actually track, like, arrows, for example, ammunition, but if you ever critically fumble an attack, that then means you're out of those. So if you're shooting your bow and you roll a one, now you're out of arrows. That's what that means. Uh, and I think that's just a better way than like tick marks on sheets. Like, oh, about 47 arrows. So I have 47 attacks. Uh, so I actually kind of, even though I'm not the crunch heavy person, I like this way of tracking.
1: Yeah, I agree. Because one of the things that I always want to play a game where I track consumables, like I just want to, but whenever we start doing that, we just stop. After two sessions, because we're all tired of it. But this is so easy, because honestly, you're only tracking if you have a D12, a D8, or a D6. But when you're playing it, it makes you feel really cool. Like, oh yeah, we're tracking consumables. We're playing a simulation game. But you're not. And so it really does kind of capture that OSR survival aspect, but in a very simple, cool way. And I like that.
0: Tied into that is the, the game has mechanical ways to... Not punish you, but interact with it. So you know something could happen that you have to roll for food again. Uh, you know, maybe there's an animal in camp, or you've fallen water, and your water may have gotten, your torches got wet, or your food got ruined. So even though things are going well, they can go from going well to going poorly so quickly in this game. Yes. Yeah,
2: and uh, yeah, we'll get into the those good old mishaps later. <laughs> and
0: and that this is, I think, the first way that
2: we've come to in several that we will. That this game really mechanizes that exploration aspect of the game, which is a big part of my love for it. Absolutely. Yeah, I really think that when you look at ultimately what's a game about, uh, you know, a game can bill itself as an exploration game, but if the mechanics are all combat, looking at you, first edition of Numenera, <laughs> that, uh, it, uh, you know, it's it's hard to say that's really what a game's about, D&D, similarly, I think, in my opinion. Um, and so the last thing I wanted to get into, where you can really see what this game wants the players to do, is if you look at the experience, uh, experience in this game is generated by a question list that the GM yes. asks at the end of the session. Um, and so you can kind of uh, interpret from that the um, what, uh, what players will fit here and be like, oh, so if I want XP, I should do that. Uh, so it, you get one for just being there. Uh, if you travel through a new game hex that your group hasn't visited before, which then also brings to mind, oh, I guess I have to record somehow and keep track of where I've been. Um, so there's an interaction with the map. Uh, discovering a new adventure site. Uh, so, uh, this game has like modular sort of adventure sites that we'll get into later. Defeating monsters, uh, finding treasure building a function, a stronghold. So, Oh, okay. I guess I get to have a stronghold activating your pride, uh, suffering from your dark secret, risking your life for another PC and performing an extraordinary action of some kind. And I mean, as a GM, my style is just to ask the list. I don't, I let people decide for themselves, whether they think what they did was extraordinary or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It does say like the GM has the final word, but I'm, I trust people that you know,
1: <laughs> yeah, but that makes us feel good about ourselves, like we know like we're like, yeah, we got the final word, but you guys can say whatever you want, that's okay,
2: oh, right, <laughs> uh yeah, and that's uh, oh, no, nope, and then they get into some more stuff about, oh reputation, right, so as you uh perform you know uh certain deeds that gain you certain renown, you might uh end up um being more well known. Uh, you actually will do a dice roll to see if you are recognized upon entering uh someplace <laughs> yes uh yeah so so that is that initial uh uh building the character section do we jump
1: then we jump into the skills correct
0: well i i, I wanted to jump in just quick and ask questions this is probably completely out of place, but uh one of the things that I cross in the sections i 'm covering is your reputation. And from what I could read, because I didn't read the other parts, is that there really isn't a positive-negative. It's just it goes up. And if it's higher, people are more likely to recognize you. But it's not like, you know, you could have like a positive 8 and a negative 12. It's just whether people recognize you or not. And the DM is up to or GM's up to their discretion on what it means if you're recognized. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I my assumption is that so much of this game... Are like if you if you read into the lore and the uh, different factions, is that what might be very positively viewed by the Rust Brothers might be really negatively viewed by the uh, the the Raven Sisters. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a really good way that you know you can't just say well saving this person makes you ingratiated to everyone yes. since only half of the people are going to like that you saved any but individual person. And
1: one of the things that's so clear about this game is that they don't talk about these are the good guys or these are the bad guys. And the it clearly, you know who the bad guys are, but it doesn't say it. And the reputation, Michael, you're so correct, is it doesn't go down because it's all about, this game is all about diving into these rare places and these ancient places and finding treasure and new loot. So when you find these things, your reputation goes up, which actually... It may be cool, like, hey, people know who we are, but now when you walk into town, people are like, Oh, wait a second. These people are really wealthy and they have this really fancy thing and now we're gonna steal it. And so it's all about just like you now, as your reputation goes up, you have a target on your back. So it I love it.
0: Alright, so I'm sorry, Curtis, go ahead. You were gonna cover skills.
2: Yeah, uh so so basically this there are four skills for each attribute. So under strength, you've got your might your endurance, your melee, and interestingly, crafting is a, a strength skill. Um, so, uh, you know, that physical labor of actually, you know, creating something, which which I thought was an interesting little twist. So it's not just brute force, it's also craftsmanship. Under agility, you've got stealth, sleight of hand, uh, move, and marksmanship, which I think all follow pretty logically. Under wits, you've got scouting, lore, survival, and insight, which again, I think are fairly straightforward. Uh, this game doesn't have any perception skill, which is another like OSR kind of feature brought into this instead uh, that scouting is uh, when you're sort of actually going out and checking out a certain area. Broadly speaking, it specifies that hidden things should be just narratively discovered, not like you shouldn't have to do a scouting role for like Looking around the inside of a room or something. And then under empathy, you've got manipulation, performance, healing, and animal handling. Yeah. And
1: these skills under those skills, you mentioned all the different attributes. One of the things I want to point out, which I think is important. So the way that this game handles what they're called kin, but you have, but in regards to everything, these are different fantasy races and how they handle this is not necessarily that certain races are worse than others or that certain races are taking negatives. But each race has one thing that they are really good at. So which is your key attribute. And what that means then is that everybody can usually take up to a certain number in an attribute. But based on what can you pick, you now have the ability to go even higher. So you're just getting Better at that. For example, the elf. Your key attribute is the agility. So you are able to be more agile than any of the other kids.
2: Yeah, and and likewise each uh, profession also has a key attribute, which also bumps it by one. So yes. uh it, it's a much more free form sort of way that's just kind of raising ceilings.
0: Mm-hmm. Which, again, is is something I appreciate. Again, you know, again, I'm the D&D stand here. I love D&D. But there are things about it I don't like. And that's one, one of the things that always has frustrated me is that as, like, say you're an elf, you're supposed to be this almost unearthly, you know, graceful being. So your dexterity should be really high. But... There's nothing mechanically that says my elf has to have a higher dex than you. You could have a dwarf with a 19 dex if you just, that's the way you build your character. So I kind of feel like there should be a difference where elves, maybe not every elf is as dexterous as this particular dwarf, but the most dexterous elves are more dexterous than this dexterous dexterous elf or dwarf sorry so i like the idea that certain kin professions actually give you a higher bar that you can get to that feels like a very good way to differentiate those
2: Mm -hmm. yeah and i i believe after character creation correct me if i'm wrong if either of you are brushed up on that but attributes are your attributes you don't bring them up or down after
0: they don't go up or down and they're also your hit points Mm -hmm. that don't go up or down uh, this is a deadly system. Your character's going to die. Yes. Get, yeah. It's
1: so good. And then after the uh, skills, we hop over to the talents, which is we, you don't, your attributes and your skills don't go up like D and D. Talents are how you level up in this game. So what is a talent? A talent is a cool mechanical thing that your character can do. This is where you're going to really level up and change your character and evolve your character as the game progresses so an example of a talent is something like a spear fighter so you now if you choose the spear fighter talent you now get to roll extra dice when you're using a spear so that's really plain and simple what a talent is you take a talent and it allows you to do something that's really cool and then each talent then has a rank and so this is what, like what Curtis was talking about, how you gain experience. This is what you're using experience for. You're using experience to either buy new talents or to buy ranks and talents. Each talent has three ranks. So it's very simple. It's not like it's 20 ranks in spear fighting where each one you get a new spear fighting stance. It's just, it's very, um, it's very simple. So what I really do like about this is what I was kind of alluding to earlier. So you may be a fighter, but you can now take the chef, um, talent. You are now really good at cooking food, which is mechanically great in this game. So it's, um, so there's all these different talents that you can take and it allows you to have complete customization of your character. Um, was, did you all, do you all like the idea of talents? What were you, what's your all, Curtis, what do you think about them?
2: So this is one where I can see two sides, okay? Because there are some of these talents, like chef, which you brought up, is a great example of. Uh, okay, so the party's running out of food. They're in the wilderness, not near anything, and they realize, uh oh, <laughs> we gotta, how, like their their food is gonna go bad if they don't cook it. You can't eat raw food in this game, but it specifies that unless you have a chef, you're not cooking it, which means <laughs> yep. they go bad in a day which means you have to send, spend a whole amount, another quarter day trying to hunt and everything. Uh, so I've had some people in my groups frustrated at that, but my view kind of is that, yeah, that's what XP is for. Yeah. You know, that, that as you learn new skills uh, that, you know, I, it's, it's, I think, a typical RPG mindset to want to be like, okay, so I'm going to get stronger and, uh, you know, I'm going to learn how to fight with the, my sword better but this game is saying, no, no, you need to learn how to cook. You need to learn how to repair your weapons and armor and that sort of thing uh, for experience, not just learn how to fight better.
1: No, it's so true, too, because you, ha- it's, it's, you have that session where you're in the wilderness and all your food spoils because you don't have cook. Hey, that means on the next session, you now spend your experience points to get the chef talent. And now you're set. And so that's what I really, as you're playing the game, you learn and because it's not like a system where you're taking a certain class and you're locked into this, these are available to anyone. So as you learn, you're like, Oh wait, this is cool. I want to ride a horse and hit stuff on the horse. Now you can take the horse fighter talent. And it's just like, it's, so there's this, me personally, like I just love, I was, I've, I that you can actually make a really cool mounted, like, Combat character, like I can take the horseback fighting and I can take the spear fighter and now I can be like a jousting knight riding across the plains of the Ravenland. That is awesome. Like I love yeah. that.
2: Yeah, this game's just half a step away from being a classless system, but just enough that it suggests for you what you, you know, is plausible to be doing.
1: Yes. Which is very similar to several other free league games like Simbarum, which we have covered. So it's very, it's, they say it's classless, but it's not really. All right. So that brings us into the, this is, we're still in the meat of it, but Michael, let's talk about combat and damage. And I think this is where we really need to talk about the Mutant Year Zero system.
0: So I, I'm not familiar with that system, so I only know how the dice work from this game. And
1: you know the Mutant Year Zero system.
0: <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so I'm covering combat and damage, and I will say that for me, this game feels crunchier than what I'm used to, and that's D&D 5e, though I skip and ignore so many rules in 5e that it's probably not as crunchy for me as it is for most, but I don't know this system well enough to know what I can skip and what I can ignore, so it feels like there's more crunch to it. But having said that, it also kind of makes sense. Like there isn't anything that's counterintuitive. It's just I feel like there's a lot of information that everyone at the table needs to know. Because if I'm doing a thing as an NPC or as a monster, you could potentially have interruption actions or reactions. And you need to know that you can do that. But you also need to know that you have limitations on if you can do that based on what you've already done. Or if you do a reaction, it will limit then what you can do. So at a very high level, you're going to be rolling a lot of D6s, but these D6s are going to fall into multiple categories. If you buy the the Free League version or Forbidden Lands dice set, they actually have different colors. So we've already talked about you have your attributes. So for like melee combat, it's strength. And then one of the skills is melee or melee, however you say that. So if I'm going to attack someone as a character, I'm going to have a number of D6s based off of my strength, which is probably 1, 2, 3, or 4. I think 4 is pretty high. And then I'm going to have a number of D6s based on my skills. So if I have the melee skill, I might have 1 or 2 or 3 D6s that are of that color. Then if I'm using a weapon, I'm probably going to have a D6 or so based off of the weapon I'm using. And I'm going to roll all these D6s together. So, so many for skill, so many for the attribute, so many for gear. And you're looking for sixes or for successes in the game. It has a special symbol, but basically you're looking for sixes. You're allowed to push if you don't like the result. In most cases, there's some cases you can't, uh, particularly I believe in like magic. There's some uh, times you can't push, but I'm not 100% sure. But most of the time you're going to be able to push. If you push, you can re-roll as many of those as you want, unless they roll to one. You're not allowed to re-roll once. Ones don't mean anything unless you push. But once you have pushed, those ones then become important. So then you roll whatever you want to. And now, you again, you're looking for successes and you're looking for ones. If you push, those ones hurt yourself. So I think they're called banes in the game. So if you're attacking with a weapon, strength attack, and you roll two banes, congratulations. You just did two points of damage to yourself somehow, but you also may have hit and... All you need is one success in most cases to be successful. Additional successes might, up like damage, for example, is an additional point of damage. And you also get willpower points through pushing yourself and getting damage. So if you push yourself and you get some ones, you get willpower points. Congratulations, that's how you activate some of your talents. And that's how you activate magic. But you can kill yourself by pushing. So you have to be very careful. Uh I'm sure I left out some big stuff so Tom or Carljean anything else within the dice system that needs to be clarified.
2: Uh you you got uh yeah the the gist of it. I I'll say just to to cuz I'm coming at it from a different perspective I think as far as some of the uh the pushing and the um the the damage and strain you receive through that. You know, this is a game of desperation, right? Uh so it's not even necessarily the damage but just that you're exhausting yourself if you were to cuz i actually have had players uh who push themselves just end up all ones and they're out <laughs> from from yeah. a certain action that's happened to me a couple times and uh luckily never i don't think in combat but uh in a situation where then they could rest afterwards after they try to perform some kind of activity i think trying to uh lodge a boat from a shore somebody just totally went benches.
0: um but, uh.
1: Beach is uh, dangerous.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, life's the beach. <laughs> and then you die.
1: No, Michael, I think that, so I come down on the complete opposite side of you. And I don't, and we talked about this, I don't think this game is crunchy at all. Because, alright, this is why we all know, Michael, you are Professor Fluff. So you ignore, right. you ignore 90% of all the rules in Dungeons and Dragons anyway. Alright, so, you can't ignore rules in this game because it is so well designed and you, the rules actually the, the, the inf, they they influence and they they tell the narrative so well and but what I think this game boils down to and the way I would describe this as to somebody is that you literally you just want to roll one six. That's all you need and you've succeeded. There's all this sort of ancillary stuff, but what makes this game so much, so much simpler, I would say than a traditional fantasy or d20 system is that everybody is using the core rules. So everybody is trying to do the same thing. Roll the d6. There's not all of these ancillary things such as this person is raging or this this person is using the spell system because the spell system in this game is literally the same thing. It's just rolling a D6. So everything is all on this equal playing field. And then if you look at talents for the most part, you say, well, what about talents? Talents for the most part are just adding in dice that you roll. So they're just adding into your dice pool. So the way that you shape your character doesn't change the core mechanic of the game. So from a dungeon master's perspective or a game master perspective... To me, it made it a lot easier because there wasn't as much that I felt like I needed to know. So I feel like I can use the rules better. With Dungeons & Dragons, I do the same thing that you do, Michael. I ignore 90% of the rules because when it comes down to it, there's so many rules to know. And then you got to know everything for everybody. Whereas this, it's just you need to know a lot, but you only need to know it one time instead of knowing a lot of a whole lot of different things.
0: And I will grant you that it is one core mechanic. It does seem in all instances to work that way. But I still think there's some some crunch to it. And I'm going to cover – I'll get into that in a little bit. One thing I do want to clarify is you don't have to worry about ones if it's a skill die, mm-hmm. which I also think is kind of interesting. So – because, like, when you hurt yourself, when you roll these banes, it sort of acts like a narrative dice from, like, Genesis – Because you then need to narrate, okay, you successfully hit the goblin with your sword. You successfully dislodged the boat. You successfully jumped over this cliff. But you also managed to hurt yourself somehow. So describe to me what that looks like. And and it's like basically giving your players this little narrative box they get to play in that says, okay, I know I hit the orc. The orc is dead. But I also did two points of damage to myself. So what does that look like? And I think that's kind of interesting and fun. But you don't ever have to worry about ones on skill dice because uh, there's, there's something that rules basically you can't, because you're not skilled enough, you're not going to hurt yourself. It's, you know, raw power, mm-hmm. I guess. I don't know how to explain it, but yeah. I think that again, it's not overly complex, but it is like I have dice from three different pools. I'm allowed to push. If I roll ones, I can't reroll those. So I want, I have to keep them. I'm looking for sixes, but I don't have to worry about ones if they're skilled. I still can't reroll them. But I can't. I don't have to worry about them. So there's still all these little decisions Mm. that have to be made. So, again, I feel like we could talk two hours if we went too much in-depth on the combat stuff. So I don't want to get too into the weeds. But there are a few things I want to cover just to kind of illustrate some of the complexity I'm talking about. So off the bat, initiative. Most games I play, you roll d d20. And higher numbers go first. In this game, you have a deck of cards that go one through ten, and you literally draw them out. And the order that you draw is so number one will go first, number ten will go last. You can't really have more than ten combatants because you only have ten cards. So the GM guy will tell you to group. So if there's like six orcs, then maybe you do orcs all go on the same initiative, or you break them into groups of three or something like that. Once you've drawn your initiative, you never change it unless you have a rule that lets you. Because one of the things that's interesting about this game is you can faint. And you can you can't faint monsters because monsters use their comp they, they fight completely different than NPCs. But if you faint, all you do is trade initiatives, which initially didn't seem to be to make a whole lot of sense to me as to why you would want to do that. Later I figured out why we'll get to that in a minute. You also then have the things that you can do on your turn are broken down to slow actions and fast actions. You can do one slow action and one fast action each turn. Or you can do two fast actions. And this is, again, where some of the complexity gets in. Because you can break initiative to help another character. You also can break initiative if you have reactions. So if I'm being attacked, I can choose to parry or dodge. Depending on maybe I can, maybe I can't, because there's our rules to that. What weapon I'm using, what I'm being attacked by, and what my talents and skills are. But if I choose to dodge, for example, that is a fast action. So I have to notate that I have used a fast fast action before it was my turn. So when it becomes my turn, all I have left is one other fast action or the slow action. If I get attacked multiple times, I may choose to dodge both times, which is fine. But then I don't have any actions left when it comes to my turn. So... The, the book describes there's a way you can like turn your initiative card because it, it assumes you use these actual cards. So like maybe you turn left is fast and right is slow. But to me, I think you literally need two additional cards, one that says fast, slow, and one that says fast. And you either turn them over or you do something with those because in a, in a big combat, it's very possible that you're going to use some or all of your actions before it's your turn. So even though you're in initiative, you can break initiative, but it has consequences, which I think is cool. I think it's mm-hmm. fun. But it is again. Everybody has to be aware of. Oh, Curtis used his fast action dodge. Tom uses slow action here. So now that it's your turn, you only got these things left. Uh, again, it can be complicated. Uh, you also have setup actions. So if you're using a bow, if you want to aim as a fast action, you get a bonus die when you shoot on your turn, but you can't knock. And aim, unless you have a talent that says you can. There's certain weapons you can swing your weapon as a fast action before you actually use it in combat, which is basically it's the equivalent of aiming so you can get additional die, which is another d6. But the choice of what you do, how you do it, when you do it are important in this game. There's a whole bunch of stuff about zones and ranges. I don't want to get into that other than to say that it's important because you could have Trying to leave a zone and you have to go through segments and their zone could be rough while yours is open so then you have to make a movement roll and if you fail that you fall down at the end of your turn. Uh, being on the ground is really bad. If, if, uh, if you look on page 91 of the players got it shows someone on the ground about to get murdered because that's what happens in this game. If you fall down you're gonna die because this game is really deadly. Uh, there's a whole section on ambushes and sneak attacks because there's special rules for that. But a big part of this game is that exploration. And one of the things that I think is pretty cool about the game is one of the people on your team is generally going to be tasked with scouting. Yes. So when you're out doing the exploring section, one of you is going to scout. Myself as a game master, I'm going to roll on a random table to see if there's something that like a random encounter, like an ogre or a giant squid. I've had both of those in the games I've ran. If you successfully scout, then you get to be told, hey – there's an ogre up ahead. So rather than just walking blindly into the ogre, you have the choice to see the ogre and avoid it or set up an ambush. Uh, so there's a, there's basically a whole rules on like everybody ambushing this ogre because it doesn't know you're there. Close combat and range combat have slightly different rules to them. On um, again, what you can do as far as like weapons that might have hooks that you can help drag people down, shields that parry, uh, you can't parry ranged attacks, but you can dodge them. But if you dodge them, you fall down unless you take a negative two. So this, you know, once you're on the ground, it's harder because you have to use part of your movement to stand up. But one of the crazy things, and I don't fully understand it. So I might go to Curtis here, is this hidden combinations. Oh, advanced. No,
1: you can ignore it. It's optional.
0: Yeah. That, that's called
2: out specifically as optional and only if you have the cards.
0: But I, but I just I think this is an interesting twist. I just want to cover it quickly. So you have the option if you are in close combat with another NPC, not a monster, because monsters use their own rules, that each of the participants would get a deck of cards that has like options like strike, prepare, hinder, maneuver, double up, which is basically do the same thing twice. You have a hand of cards. You choose two of them, and you lay them down hidden from each other, and then you turn them up one at a time. And based on what you have picked and what your opponent has picked, they are going to interact differently. So, for example, if I'm the attacker and I choose to attack you, you turn up your first card. If it's not to defend yourself, then it's going to be easier for me to hit you. And if I hit you, you lose what you said you were going to do. So if you're the defender and you're like, all right, I'm going to hit this fool twice – But you let me hit you first, then you don't get to do anything and I get to hit you again. So that's where faint comes in because I want to switch my initiative so that I'm now the attacker so that I can go before you, which limits your options and hidden combinations. I would never use these rules, but they're intriguing and I would like to talk to someone who has used them and used them well because it's basically like playing a, like a, it's like playing a mini game in the middle of a video game. It's like in Mass Effect when you're suddenly doing the thing where you got to connect the the lines together quickly or something. Is it's a completely different rule set outside of the general rule set, but it's interesting. The one time
2: that I could see myself using that because I agree, it's way too absurd to have a big combat like that. But what about like a you know a gladiatorial fight or a duel kind of situation? That I think could be neat.
0: Yeah, I, I can think like big moments, mm-hmm. but I would never want to do this just in the middle of a a regular combat because it's going to slow things down it's going to confuse people and change everything up uh the last thing i want to cover before i get into damage because damage is important is social conflict so basically you can get people to do what you want them to do without hitting them with a stick you can manipulate them but part of this there's like these rules of, of of where you start from if you have more people on your side you get Dice. If you if they have more people on their side, you don't your reputation score. But what I love about this is my favorite thing about social combat is if I win the role and tell you to do something, you have two options. You can either do what I say, or you have to attack me immediately. Like, those are your options. So even if I convince you with, like, this great telling of, like, I try to influence you or intimidate you or persuade you, it doesn't matter. You either do what I say or you can attack me. So you always have the option to be like, no, I'm not going to be manipulated by you. But the only result is physical violence against me. And for some reason, that makes me smile. So you have different weapons. I lied. I'm going to talk about with this. So different weapons have different attributes, like one-handed, two-handed. It could have attributes like um, hook, for if it, which gives us certain abilities, parry, which gives you a bonus dice if you're parrying. Generally, as Tom said before, you only need one success, and then you're going to do damage. So just for example, uh, we're looking at the longsword. Longsword is one-handed. You get two bonus dice. If you were using this when you're attacking, you'd roll your strength and your melee skill, and you get two dice for your weapon. Uh, the damage is two. So if I have one success, I'm going to do two damage. If I have three successes, I'll do three damage. If I have five success, I'll do six damage. So the first one just means you hit, and then each additional success after that does one additional point of damage. It's so
1: simple. You roll a six, and then
0: Stuff that's happens. it. <laughs> but if you roll a one... On your gear, in this case your weapon, and you push because if you don't push, ones don't matter. But if you push, then you're going to step down that bonus. So if that longsword would go from plus two to a plus one, you can craft and repair it after the battle. But in the middle of the battle, now it only gives you plus one. If you push again later. And now you have additional ones on that sword. You actually can break your weapon. So your weapons and your just your gear in general losing their efficiency and being broken is another aspect of this game you have to deal with. So, yeah, your food may have been spoiled, but you also may have broken your only spear in the battle or even in hunting this boar, and now you've got to repair your spear or you don't have that when you go into your next battle. So damage, basically we covered your attributes are your hit points so if your strength is four you have four hit points in your strength your agility your wits and your empathy and certain attacks can damage each of those differently so most attacks default to strength so most of the time you're going to take damage and strength but other types of damage will affect you differently so like um others to agility so like fatigue and exhaustion wits is fear and panic and empathy is cynicism and distrust if you go to zero in any of these, you are broken, and then you have to roll on the critical hit table, unless you did it to yourself. If you pushed yourself and went to zero, you're broken, but you don't have to roll on the critical hit table. Some of these critical hit tables will flat out just kill you. You're just dead. Uh it uses the six is the six six d6 six method. So you roll two d6s, one of them's a 10, one of them's a single. So you're gonna get a result from eleven to sixty-six. The first time I ran this on the quick start rules, the very first attack, we killed someone. Just critical injury, first attack, they go down, dead. Just that's how quickly it can happen. Uh depending on which ability or which uh attribute is the one that's broken, you have different uh or no, it's the type of attack determines your critical hit tables. There's like, you know, strength, agility. There's also like other attacks, fear, that kind of stuff. Uh, you're going to die and you're going to die a lot. What's interesting though, is it's actually not that hard to heal yourself. So it's easy to die, but if you don't die, you're going to be back up to full health in just a couple of days because you don't have that many hit points and it's not that hard if somebody's there to take care of you. So I think that's the one thing that kind of is sort of interesting of the system is that combat's deadly. There's a good chance every time you go into combat that you're going to die. But if you survive, you'll be back on your feet, full ready to go in just just a little bit. A couple of the things. There's uh, poison. So there's poison that attacks you, your strength, paralyzing poison, sleeping potions, and hallucinogenic potions, which that could be fun. They have two effects. If you're targeted by this, you're going to at least get the limited effect, but you get a chance to roll your endurance. If you pass, then you only get the limited effect. So, for example, in a lethal potion, the limited effect is you take one point of damage. The full effect is you take one point of damage each round until you're broken, and uh, then you're going to die because that's how this game works. Hello, Michael from the future here, jumping back in time, because somehow I managed to forget a very big part of how combat works in this game, and neither Tom nor Curtis caught my error, so I blame them as much as me here. But... If you are attacked and you're about to receive damage in the game, you do have the option most of the time to do some sort of defense. This could be parry or dodge. There are rules for when you can and can't do them, but usually you can do one or the other if you choose to. Uh, if so, you're going to roll some dice for those actions. And any successes you get, so any sixes that you get when you're on a defense, subtracts from sixes that hit you. And if you are able to get rid of all the sixes that hit you, so the person attacking you rolled three sixes three sixes, and you roll three sixes defense, then they miss and no damage is taken. If some of that damage does end up going through, so maybe you rolled two sixes on your defense, but the attackers rolled four sixes on their attack, and you're wearing armor, then you also get to roll armor, which will have a rating based on the type of armor it is. It'll be a number of D6s, and again, you roll those. And again, if there's two successes left, or maybe there are only two successes ever, and you get enough successes on your armor, then you'll take no damage. So if you're wearing armor, you'll get to roll that. You may also get to roll for parry or dodge, depending on if you have those actions and you take them. Uh, so it's very important that you do defend yourself in this game, and it can reduce, eliminate damage. And now on to what I said in the past... All right. I think that's mostly that stuff I wanted to cover on Combat and Damage. Uh, I left wide swaths of this out, but I wanted to cover to show some of the reasons why I think there's um, crunch. So, Tom, what did I leave out that you think is important or would you counter that that's not
1: it's not complicated um i i you 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 talked a lot michael um uh, and i i I, and um no i think you there is lots of complexity but what i think is just so important i still think that it boils down to this very simple it's you just want a d6 and then there's certain things that modify it as far as the the I I saw optional rules like I said oh you want to make your combat more complex here's optional rules I'm like yeah I'm not gonna read that like that's just how I am but um no no I I think you you yeah, covered it like it's it's very I, I think it's very sleek it's deadly I think it's fast once you know it in combat this is a fast combat system
2: yeah there's also a built-in death spiral since you get worse the more you get hit and likewise the enemies too uh, unless you're fighting a monster. So, so that actually, I've rarely had combats take more than two or three turns mm-hmm. because it's people. not like D&D where everyone's fighting just as strong as they were the fifth time around. <laughs> Everybody's really on their last legs after a couple, uh, couple rounds, which also makes that initiative people, really important. People be dying. So, yeah. um, and another, th- another tool that really does, I think, help the flow of things. Is if you get their propi- proprietary dice that are color coded and have the symbols, the skill dice don't have the death symbol. They just have a one, so you know that you can not worry about keeping track of which one that is because it tells you essentially. Right. Yeah,
0: I would buy the dice.
2: I, I highly recommend it.
0: So uh, I I didn't get, didn't read my uh, little blurb though. There is a blurb on the combat and damage, but what I thought was. Maybe more apropos is in the first actual paragraph of the rules, it it ends this way. Combat can be rough for your player character and can even be lethal. Before you enter combat, you should always ask yourself, is it worth it? Coming from a DD and d background, 99% of the time, if you go into a fight, you're going to win. That's just, you know, it, it might be hard. You might lose some resources. There might be some cool role play in the middle. But for the most part, you're going to win. In this game, that is absolutely not true. It's like 50-50 at best, and it's probably 60-40 against you, because one of you is going to die in a party of four. You're not all going to make it, and are you willing to be the one that doesn't make it? So you really do have to think, do we want to fight this, which I think is why scouting is so interesting when like, and I can see like, a, again, the D&D equivalent, you scout, you see there's an ogre ahead, everyone's like, great, let's kill this ogre. And I, in this game, I'd be like, there's an ogre, great, let's go the other way. <laughs> yes.
2: <sighs> it's, it's cool. Uh, the one other thing while we're in combat, the one thing I really want to mention is, uh, the, the, um, the coup de grace rules, or coup de grace. Mm-hmm. You have to, to, to kill a helpless enemy. You have to succeed. Or you have to fail on an empathy role. Yes, I just think that's a really neat uh, way of looking at it. Is you have to make an empathy role. This person is, you know, probably begging for their life, and you have to ignore their humanity or elfanity or, <laughs> or humanity <laughs> and uh, you know somehow find the like evil within you to kill this uh, hostage.
0: It's very good.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting role. And I think there's a talent, cold-hearted, where you can ignore it.
0: <laughs> Pretty much anytime there's like, a, like a, a rule here, there's probably a talent that, that creates a corner case or, or absolves you of that. Uh, looking back over my notes, one the thing I want to do want to touch on is conditions. Hungry, thirsty, sleepy, and cold.
1: Super important.
0: Super important, especially going back to like half this game is exploration. If you are hungry, thirsty, or sleepy, uh, or cold, it affects whether or not you can heal it can cause you to lose attribute points so that you will not be in top shape. Uh The Bitter Reach campaign, which again we're going to do in a future episode, is all about being in the cold. And I'm sure there's probably additional rules in there uh, about that. But we haven't got to that yet. Uh, the other big section I have is magic. And to Tom's point, magic is going to work kind of similar. You're going to roll some d6s. You're looking for a d6. You have talents that allow you to cast types of spells. And they're not... This isn't D&D. You don't have... It's not broken down that way. But you have... I think they're called disciplines. Mm-hmm. And there's a talent for each discipline. The discipline allows you to cast magic of that discipline, any spell of your rank or less. In this book, everything is ranked one, two, or three. So if you have rank two in, say, healing, you can cast any one or two rank spell. You can also... Try to chance casting, which is where you roll higher than your rank, but you're guaranteed to get a mishap where if you don't do that, there's a chance you will, depends on what you roll. Uh, and one of the mishap just straight up kills you. Just so you know, if you're rolling on that, there's a chance you're just going to be dead because you're going to die. Just get used to that. Uh, you need willpower points to cast spells. That's how you power them. You get willpower points, again, by pushing yourself and failing and getting some ones you can still succeed but you get some ones and you get willpower points you can spend more willpower points than required to cast the spell to kind of beef it up and it will count as a higher rank i think those are the big things um there's several different disciplines in the court book i'm sure the campaign guides that come out will include those so you have general spells i think everyone can cast those if you have any discipline and it's like Magical Seal, Sense Magic, Dispel Magic. Then you have Healing Spells that do pretty much what you would think. Though the, the highest level is Weather Master, which doesn't make sense for healing for me, but basically you can create weather anomalies. Uh, Shape Shifting, which is very much like your druid, You can talk to animals. You can take the, like the, the eye of the hawk and you can see better. The uh, deer's dash, you can run faster. Or you can just turn into an animal. Which is kind of interesting because you have to cast it again to get out of it, but it says that you take on the attributes of the animal, which doesn't mean you can speak. So I don't know how that works. Awareness, like light bringer, you bring a light telepathy. You can, you know, talk telepathically symbolism, which I think was kind of an interesting one. Basically, you create like a symbol and it can cause people to be drawn to it or be, uh, you know, pushed away from it. it. Can blind people. It can create illusions. Ultimately, you can create portals portals are interesting because when you create a portal you go into a demonic realm and that's kind of where the spell ends you're in the demonic realm it says you can create another portal once you're on the other side and then you can come out anywhere you want but it's not like you bypass you have to go into the demonic realm and then cast it again to get out the other side and demons are a big part of this game we'll get to that in bestiary and they are bad mo i'm just talking about demons uh, Stone Song, which basically makes you an Earthbender from After the Last Handbender. Blood Magic and Death Magic. Uh, the highest level Death Magic is Weight of Ages. You can cause people to age. Uh, so this is where choosing your age when you get your character could be interesting because if you choose to be old so that you get more skills, congratulations, I can now make you so old you die because you're going to die in this game a lot.
1: Yeah, I think, Michael, you missed the, I think one of the most important things though. Whenever you cast a spell, you don't fail. Your spell always succeeds no matter what. So, but what your dice do then is if you roll successes, they make your spell more powerful. And if you roll the ones, it makes magical mishaps happen, which you kind of, which you mentioned, but literally the magical mishaps, there are two of them. So you roll your dice and it's a, it's a percentile. You roll them and if you get the two highest ones you're dead either uh demon hops out pulls you to the other side and it says your time to make another character or the next one you just get turned into a big old dumb animal like that's it and so what i love is that because this happens so often when i'm playing games and somebody casts this really cool spell and then they fail i'm just like ugh. That was lame. I want him to see, I want to see him do something. So in this, it's, you always succeed, but do you succeed really well or do you die? And it's just like, it makes magic dangerous and I love it.
2: Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of magic with a cost. And, uh, this, this is that <laughs> for sure. Yes, uh, and, and the, again, the thing that's fueling the magic, that willpower, you get willpower by, uh, pushing yourself so it's again reinforcing the need to engage with that theme of like desperate people uh basically totally in over their heads who are really living on the edge and struggling uh and then that kind of creates this feedback loop that you get more to do like the magic or or other talents
0: that's actually one of my kind of problems with the system i'll just talk about here is i don't like i'm not a huge fan i should say of how you get willpower points through the pushing of yourself. To me, it feels more like if I choose to push myself, I should get a willpower point, but it's not the choice of pushing myself. It's the effect. So I could push myself and not get any willpower points because I didn't roll any ones, or I could literally kill myself by pushing, get four willpower points, but none of them matter because now I'm dead. So I, I don't know. I, f- I feel like that's just a little bit wonky to me. I don't, I don't get the narrative. You know, Because it's not like you have to use it right away. I feel like if I'm really feeling desperate, I might be able to charge this spell more than normal. Or you know, I, I need this to work so badly that it does. But in the narrative of the game, I felt that way. I now have this willpower point that I'm going to hold on to for maybe a week and a half. And then I'm going to spend it to cast a spell that's completely unrelated to what happened when I got it. I feel like there's a weird disconnect there, which feels weird because so much of this game fits together so well, and that's one element that to me doesn't. Yeah, I
2: would agree with that. Yeah, that's interesting. One thing I do want to specify is that when you're broken and one attribute's brought to zero, you're not dead. So so it actually is pretty simple to recover, just like regular healing from being broken in one aspect. So like when somebody exhausts themselves pushing a boat, they're not, you know, they don't leave them healed off the side. I mean, they might. (laughs)
0: They might have to. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So I'm done for a little bit. So please someone else step in. All right. I
1: think we're going to talk about journeys now.
2: Yeah. So this is again, where we're really getting into how this game is mechanizing that exploration of uh, the map. Um, and it's really hard to talk about this without, you know, bring up the whole map. So this is essentially a hex crawl game. I think we already probably alluded to that. And uh you, uh, what, one of my favorite things about that is there's the, uh, if I, uh, dig out my map actually out of this box, I've got, uh, a few things marked on it because this game also comes with a set of stickers. Stickers! That you will forever tarnish your clean map with. And I love that. I love that everybody, you know, if you have a campaign and you put a sticker for a certain adventure site on, that is forever, you know, on that map. And uh, I had one member of my game group who was like, how could you ever do that?
0: <laughs>
2: but uh, I, I think it's cool and kind of special because that means if I come back to that game with future, uh, uh like, uh, people, I already have that sticker on this map. So this place is already decided. This, like, place on my map is forever in this location. And yep. future parties are, you know, going to encounter it in the same spot but then they can add future places onto the map. Um And sort of you're creating your own living world like
0: that. Yeah, I really like that as well. Each, each map, each game world becomes its own unique place where, you know, in Hex I-7 in my world might be something that's not in your world. But there's also a whole bunch of... Character died stickers just to keep on my theme. <laughs> so every time a character dies, you get to put a little thing there that says, "Hey, a character died here," because it's going to happen a lot.
2: Oh yeah, life is cheap in the Forbidden Lands. So so and to mechanize actually doing this hex crawl, um, different types of terrain will have different effects. So um, there's a list of you know certain things are difficult terrain. Certain things like the high mountains are impassable. Regular mountains are difficult terrain. Uh, etc um and then you have a certain uh list of actions essentially that you can take um, so uh you hike that's how you move across the the map um, and as you hike one person can lead the way and one person can keep watch none of the other actions i don't think can be done actually while you're um, hiking so your you're to stop in order to forage hunt fish, uh, make camp, rest, uh, sleep. So the, oh, and explore is actually a separate thing. So exploring is when you're entering a new uh, hex uh, for the day or ever. And again, that's all taking place over those quarters of the day that Michael had uh, mentioned. So you have this whole cycles of the day thing at some point, I don't know what page it's on, but it describes like, well, depending on the season, you're going to have different amounts of daylight. So in uh in the summer it's going to be a lot of daylight and in the winter you're going to have very little. This is that's that's a rule that it makes sense that this game comes out of Scandinavia. <laughs> yes,
1: I love this too because this game is one of those games where time is so important here. Mm-hmm. So I just want to have like a big old calendar playing this game and that so I can really track how far my players have moved and where they were at this date and everything. And this is really just, um, this game is tapping into that whole idea of wanting to Tom's organizational side and data and take, and this is, there is just, if you wanted to take data from this game, you can, and it's so great.
2: Yeah. I was actually just listening to a podcast. I can't remember what one, but it was an RPG podcast talking, with somebody talking about, uh, using calendars in game and, uh, like kind of creating what will happen if the parties don't do anything. Yes. Uh, basically what's happening beyond the scenes. So you can always just reference that. So, uh, yeah, time is, is, is an important resource here, just like everything else. So, uh, then they've got for each of those actions I described, if, uh, if a one is rolled, you might end up with a good old mishap. Uh And, you know, that is everything. Let's see, I'm looking right now at leading-the-way mishaps. That's everything from a wasp's nest to quicksand uh to you know, torn clothes. Uh So you get a pretty wide range of different things. And this is a situation, actually, where I might not roll and I might select one that I think is narratively appropriate. Cause I've had, that came back to bite me a couple times as I've run this. Um, it's just like, well, that one just doesn't make any sense, so.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Or, mm, I don't necessarily think lost is the most interesting outcome here. Uh, so sometimes depending on, you know, I know f- people sometimes have strong feelings on tables and RPGs. I generally like them, but I'm, occasionally I'm gonna hedge for a more just an appropriate selection
1: no when i run this game i'm sticking to the tables i'm like i'm I, when i ask my players i'm like guys this is what we're doing we are going to use these random tables and you are going to like it
2: all right <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so yeah so like i said i think that's the gist they also have rules for sea travel if you go by sea um they're also i've used those rules for um rivers too since they're uh, all across the the map. There are a bunch of rivers that flow through. And uh, yeah, I think that's the gist. I'm just, I, again, was very happy to encounter a game that says it's about exploration, that actually, like, puts rules behind what it says the game is about. That it's not just, uh, you know, you can describe what happens over the adventure.
1: Yeah, no, these are core to it, which is, it's so cool. And my only suggestion for, How I would recommend playing this game is to really lean into them, and these allow you to really slow the pace down of the game. And one of the things that I always run into when I'm running a game is that I want to do exploration, but there's just not anything there for it. So we just wind up chewing through plot instead, and it can be so taxing from the GM's perspective to just always having more plot. Whereas this is really, you can just really dial back the pace of the game, set up camps, have your players go fishing, and track some different things, and it, it does it in a, I think, in a well way, a good way.
0: One thing I don't, I don't know if you made it super clear or not. Maybe I'm just dumb. Well, we know I'm dumb. Uh, but when you have an adventuring party, each party member takes on a certain role as you're traveling. So only one person can quote unquote lead the way. Now this can change even every quarter day, but you know, if you have a talent or higher skill that makes sense for you to lead the way, Uh, one other person can scout certain. So you have certain roles that you take on, uh, but only one person can scout. You can't have like, I don't think three people scouting that lead the way. And I think there's four different things that you can do there's lead the way scout and then there's two others i think
1: there's hunting and there's fishing and then there's um gathering
0: yeah, yeah but you can't do that while you're traveling i thought there were two others you could do so i guess it's just lead the way and scouting yeah which again can dictate how well you're getting around but then when it's time to make camp there's a make the camp role which can also have a miss out you could actually set your camp up on a fire ant hill mm-hmm. or a bear may come in the middle of the night and take your food away i one of the times I ran this from the quick start rules, uh, there was a fire, and everybody had to make a movement roll or lost one item that they had carried. So they had one piece of gear they had to say was destroyed in the fire that swarmed through camp.
1: Yeah, the, the rules here, if anybody listening has ever played Ryutama, it's very, very similar to that. Where every, there's camping roles, everybody has different things that they're doing. And I love that game. And I, that's why I think I really like this game too, for this same reason.
0: And I'll just throw it in here. Um, if you, if anything we've said so far, cause we're like half done, is interesting, go to the Free League website. I'll have a link in our show notes. There's a quick start rule set for this, which is completely free. It's a 154 page quick start PDF, it comes with four preaching characters, it comes with a lot of these rules. From, I mean, there's like a whole bunch of what we already covered. It's completely free and it comes with a, um, adventure location. So I've ran this game twice now using nothing but the quick start. It's definitely enough for you to get in and and try this game out and have fun with it.
1: Absolutely. So I think that brings us to the stronghold. And this is pretty brief because this is, this is the end goal for most games. This is, it says it right at the beginning. You're traveling into the Forbidden Lands for fame and glory and for fortune. And the end goal here is make a stronghold and make a name for yourself. So they have rules in here for how to make a stronghold. Uh They're very detailed, and they also come with the game has a stronghold sheet where you can track things. Because so, this game, we've already said, is there's lots of stuff to track here, but what a stronghold is, is it is a base of operations. It is a place where your players can go in the middle of this terrible place and be safe. Strongholds then can grow and there are, you can buy new parts of your stronghold. So you can buy libraries, forges, um, mines, all this different stuff. There's everything. And then as well, you can hire people. These are specialized occupations that these different people in the Forbidden Lands have and they've come to work at your stronghold. So you can have carpenters, you can have executioners, you know, to take care of the near wells Uh and there's all sorts of millers and smiths. And what's so cool about this is this is straight up civilization, Sid Meyer civilization <laughs> in a game in a RPG format because what you're doing is you're hiring underlings or hirelings. To manage these different things that you've built in your stronghold. Without your hirelings, your, func- your stronghold functions, they don't work. So there's this, it's a lot to track, but they give you the stronghold sheet. And then also I'm going to jump all the way into the game master's guide because this ties right into it. Right at the beginning of the game master's guide, there is a table for random encounters of stuff that happens at the stronghold. So your characters, they got their stronghold. They're like, all right, hirelings, you stay here. Make sure nothing happens. We're going to go off and explore. Your players go off and explore. And then why they're gone, you get to roll some dice to see what happens. And there's all sorts of stuff like, um, little Jimmy accidentally burned down the hay storage. Or, hey, a band of orcs are now surrounding your stronghold when you return. And it's just like just stuff like that. So it's it's strongholds add a new element to the game to when you feel like you've reached a point where like hey, we don't really want to explore anymore. We want to do something else. That's what strongholds are for.
2: And the oh, if you aren't back and they have no way to get paid, here's what happens. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> it's so good. So uh, that that's strongholds and I so what I think it's super cool there is if you want to do stronghold management,
2: it's right here. Yeah, that's a part of the game I haven't gotten to engage with yet but I really want to.
1: Yeah. I don't know if in my games, if we'll engage with that aspect, but I like that it's there and I like what it is and it's, it's simple enough. And I'm like, Oh, this is cool.
2: Yeah. It's, it's built for me. If there were a party of me's, <laughs> I would love to play with that, <laughs> but I haven't found that yet. <laughs> Good
1: luck. Well, anyway, that takes us to the next section, which is gear, Michael.
0: All right. So gears pretty short and simple. Uh, the gear that you carry has a pretty profound effect. So again, if you have a, a weapon, you're gonna get extra dice when you're attacking with it. If you have a bow, you get extra dice when you attack with it. If you have a cook set, you get extra bonus dice when you're cooking. Uh, you can use like a spy glass when you're scouting for the foraging. And for the most part, they're gonna give you a certain number of dice, uh, one, two, maybe three. And then if, uh, something bad happens while you're using it, it can get broken. The gear section also details the stuff that you might want to buy when you're out in the world. It has a a supply rating. So common, you're going to find it in most places. Uncommon, may not find it anywhere, and rare could be hard to find. And in those cases, you're going to roll a D6 and it will determine whether or not they have any or at all in the, in the place that you're looking. And then it also has a, a bunch of a bunch of lists of all the different items. It's supply rating, common, uncommon, rare. Uh, if you wanted to create your own, what skills you would need, any uh, particular elements like a forge or uh, tannery, that kind of thing. And then what that item would give you as a bonus, uh, you know, if you have one. Uh, really, the big thing I wanted to cover is like magical items and artifacts. And these are more weighted towards weapons, but it doesn't have to be. But you can actually get like a magic sword, for example, that it's die rather than being the standard d6 is a d10 or a d12 and if you buy the uh the dice set from uh, free league for the forbidden lands games it has these special dice that have multiple successes so like if you have a d12 artifact sword then obviously The 6 counts as a success, but maybe the 8 counts as 2 successes. And the 10 counts as 3 successes, and the 12 counts for 4 successes. And the the dice actually has the the different symbols carved on there. So I think that's a really cool, nifty way to show how powerful these artifacts and magical items are by giving them a a D higher than the standard base dice system with additional successes built in. And really no additional side effects or negative. So I thought that was really cool. Anything else on gear?
1: No, I can get a heavy spear. I'm good.
0: Uh And then the last thing I had was the critical injuries. I kind of already covered that. There's extensive tables in the back, depending on what type of attack... Breaks you, you're going to roll on these different critical hits or critical injuries. Some of them are like you twist your ankle and you have limited movement for one D six days or you broke an arm and it takes an additional D, you know, D six to heal all the way up to you're dead. You get beheaded. That's
1: like the top one for a slash. You're like, yeah, your head is gone. You're dead. Make a new character.
0: Time to roll a new character. Moving on. Get that sticker or map out. <laughs> all right. So that's it. Everything in the player's handbook, and we didn't really cover it, but the books are also gorgeous in and among themselves. There's this like faux leather covering and they have these, uh, ribbon bookmarks, which I'm a big fan of. The player's handbook is sort of a mar- uh, maroon red and the game master is this deep emerald green.
1: The other thing I love about this book is that it is small. It is the size of a traditional hardcover that you would get, not a, not an RPG book. It's not the big, usually what? 10 by 9 or 10 by 8 or whatever it is. This is a pretty standard, like, book and I love it because it fits in my hand, I can read it in my bed and...
0: I think it's about the size of a comic book. I think that's why you like it so much. That's time. probably
1: what it is. It's is basically yeah. a comic book. There you go.
0: Yeah, and and the box... Oh, and just to add
2: the box they come in, I keep everything from the games in there. Character sheets, the dice, it's all in one handy box so I don't have to worry about you know, this big pile of different things or a binder or anything. Uh,
0: and this is completely not the place to put this in here, but I forgot to do it at the top. So I'm going to do it now. We here at the RPG Academy were put on the free league media list. So we, I got a free copy of the Bitter Reach campaign guide to do that review, but all of us on here bought our own sets of the Forbidden Lands. So we all bought this game ourselves uh So this review was not in any way influenced by getting free stuff. Bitter Reach won't be either, but we did at least get one free copy. Though I think both of you guys also bought your own, so that'll still. be I one bought of everything the on the Bitter Reach Kickstarter. I was <laughs> like, "Yeah, give me it all." And so. <laughs> all right, so let's move on to the Game Master's Guide. Uh So I have the first section here, and basically this is just like an overview for the Game Master. And and the thing I wanted to call out is there are seven principles for the game that it wants the game master to keep in mind. And they are, number one, the world lies before you. And that falls into this map that we have that every group that plays it has will have their own unique map and the stickers because you're going to make it your own. And it's a, it's a world that very little is known. It's full of adventures, but it's not like Forgotten Realms, for example, where there's so much of it's known, and you know, if you go, you know, two leagues that way, or into this village, and seven miles east is this village. The world's before you, and you need to explore it to find it. Number two, the land is full of legends. And this is something even the website you can go to, and you can download, like, all these additional legends. They're basically all these things, places, and people that you could run into. The, the land is full of these, and you're going to encounter them as you explore. Number three, the adventurers make their own fate. They are going to choose the direction that they go. Their dice rolls are going to determine if they go the direction they meant. And if they run into something, their dice rolls are going to determine which of them are going to die because someone's going to, but the adventurers make their own fate. Uh, number four, nothing is for free. Everything is going to have a cost. Every success. And I, and I keep harping on it mostly because I think it's funny because you are going to die a lot, but I don't think that's a negative, but nothing's for free. If you go into this dungeon or this, you know, uh, Relic, this this castle, there could be treasure inside that will make your adventurers rich for the rest of their lives, but you're not going to get in and get out completely scot-free. Something's going to cost you. Them's the scot shall lose. So if you do come out ahead, you do go in there, and you do raid that, that dungeon, and you come out with this, this treasure, you're probably not going to have it for long because the, the literal world is full of other adventurers who want to take that from you. And they're not all playing heroes. It's very explicit. This is not a game of heroes. This is a game of rogues and raiders. So if you have something, you're going to have to fight to protect it, and you're probably going to die. Death is part of the story. Again, I've been harping on it the whole time. Death is part of this story. You are going to lose your character. This is not a game where you're gonna take a character from level one to twenty, beat the, you know, the, the goddess of death and retire the character. That is just not what this game is about. Don't expect it to be. Embrace the the fact that losing characters is kind of part of the fun. Uh and number seven, the end is never set. There this is not a campaign where you know where you're gonna start, you know where you're gonna end, because of one through six. It's going to be different every time. It's going to be unique to each set of adventurers and each group of people that play. And that's part of the fun. You, the game master, you, the players, don't know where things are going to go because it's completely based on the choices the characters make and the die rolls they make in those choices. Who knows where things are going to go?
1: Yeah, I, I do definitely like that because I am a huge fan of RPGs that are very clear. This is the experience we want you to get from this game, which is very similar to a story game or any sort of drama system. And this is one another one of those things where it's kind of bridging the gap for me between this sort of drama system game and this OSR system, because there is a very specific feel that it wants you to get from the Forbidden Lands. And this is what you just described, Michael. It lays it out for you.
0: Uh, it also gives advice on the first session, because it basically tells you don't prep a whole lot, because who knows? and then from then on it gives you advice on how to prep the next session based off of where you end. Uh it's a very pretty for, pretty short section but I think it's really impactful for this particular game.
2: Yeah, I uh, just to add one little note like when I uh started my second campaign of this, I started the party they were around a fire. I all had them take one damage and give gave them one willpower and basically had them each take turns saying what they bol- they all narrowly just survived. <laughs> Uh, just to kind of get people set in the, the, the tone. <laughs> yeah. It's a game that really knows what it is.
1: Yes. And that, Absolutely. that kind of, the next section of the Game Master's Guide is really, it's a lot of lore, which I love <laughs> the, I love the lore here. And so Curtis, um, take it away. Describe this. What is the, it gives us a, a brief history of the Forbidden Aliens. What is this section?
2: Yeah, let me just read this in detail out loud to everyone for the okay, next two perfect. hours. Okay, uh, let's do it. <laughs> it's, uh, so long story short. Uh, let's see. Uh, so, uh, humans come from someplace out east, travel west, across the ocean, and encounter this new land. Uh, they call Ravenland because they followed this raven carrying a snake, uh, which they call the god worm. And, uh, they encounter this place where dwarves and elves live. Uh, at which point, uh, and this is basically their big creation myth for the, uh, the setting. They separate the land and say, humans, you have to go down to this, uh, this southern part and, uh, uh, up here we'll keep, uh, elves and dwarves. Um, and then, uh, and this is where, <laughs> Uh it get, takes a turn that I'm like, oh, okay, this is an interesting uh way to take this, but uh they created orcs as a slave race. And uh basically the setting that you're playing are after certain waves of like humans immigrating up uh into that uh elven and dwarf and orc land. Uh they eventually separated from that southern human kingdom, so you're only playing in that northern thing and there are all these different waves of humans and the history lays out i think there are like four different waves of migrations of humans coming in from the west and from the south and causing all sorts of ruckus demons etc until eventually uh this blood mist sets in uh which is this weird like constant red fog uh where if you leave your uh your like village uh, you get torn apart by weird blood mist demons.
1: The bloodlings are the worst. Oh,
2: so I, yeah, yeah, I've had my parties fight bloodlings. Um, and uh, so eventually, after what, a several hundred years or something, the blood mist recedes, and you play five years after this blood mist recedes. So, since villages were isolated after centuries of um, blood mist, uh, it's like a whole new world that everybody's exploring. All they've really known are their local place. So you're playing, you know, basically people within that first wave of adventuring, going out and uh, exploring uh, all these new ruins and communities that have been lost to like your people or whatever.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting history. And I think what they make it very clear is that basically all these different people groups in the forbidden lands for the most part are terrible they just are it is one of the 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 things that the game really tries to capture is that there really aren't too many good or bad people it's everybody's just trying to survive in the forbidden lands but i will say this also just because i do think it's important to talk about the orcs just because of the current conversation is that the orcs in this game have been totally screwed by the elves and the dwarves in this game. And then what this book tries to do in the current where the orcs are when the players pick up the game is that the, the orcs right now are kind of at the top of the food chain now. So the tables have really been shifted in the, the hundreds of years of the blood mess and now basically the orcs at this point have kind of thrown off the orcs and the elves and they are their own separate society at this point and are like you all need to leave us alone or we are going to destroy you and so it's it's the way it kind of the way it kind of frames everything is is really interesting it doesn't make it seem like one is better than the other so,
0: it, you know, at its heart, the the background just makes sure everybody hates everybody. Yes, yeah. It, yeah. equally. It's, it's basically for roleplay reasons. You're going to have a party of a bunch of people who don't like one another for various reasons, justifiable reasons. But it's basically creating tension between all the different kin uh, because everybody's screwed over somebody at some point, whether it's actually in our lifetime or in our past. Uh, which isn't what I, again, I normally, when I play like D and D games, we start off, everybody knows each other, everybody likes each other. You're, you're friends. This is not, again, that type of game. It's just convenience. I don't particularly like you, but I think you'll keep me alive. So I'm willing to put up with you. Yeah.
1: So that's such, such a good point. It's just, that's, it really, that's what makes the Forbidden Lands the Forbidden Lands is these are people that you may not get along with, but you have to. Otherwise, you are going to be swallowed alive by this terrible, terrible place.
2: Yeah, and and the uh, the relationships that uh, you generate in character creation helps nuance that. Aside from just like, well, I don't like you because you're this, and it yes. adds some, some some layers to that.
1: Perfect. Um, and then we get into the the gods. Would you say then that the how how much of an impact do the gods play in this game Curtis
2: <laughs> yeah, the each of the factions pretty much have their own gods, so mm-hmm. uh it it really helps and one of the things I really love, and I don't want to get too in the nitty gritty of the gods, yeah. but one thing that carries through that's just so reminiscent of real world um like theological debates. Is this like, uh, the different, uh, groups saying, uh, that, that, so the god worm, or raven, or heme and rust, or, uh, the, the black wings cult, all have this basic, de- uh, debate over the raven that was carrying a snake across the ocean leading humans over. Yeah. They all debate whether it's the serpent that's holy, Or it's the raven that was holy. Or uh, you guys both have it wrong, and it's actually one was made of wood and one was made of metal, and it's actually the materials that are important. Or uh, the other one saying, oh, no, it's that uh, ravens eat dead things. They're carrion eaters, and uh, it was supposed to be that they were leading humans to their death. (laughs) (laughs) So you have, like, and it's so reminiscent of, you know, insert you know, Catholic versus Protestant or uh, Sunni versus Shia religious debates that, you know, just, you know, ultimately are these, from an outside perspective, uh, weird, nuanced, what are you guys actually talking about kind of uh, debates. And I think that this setting really did a cool job doing that. And I wonder, too, thinking about um, the religious history, and I'm a history major, so uh, very interested Dig, He's in that. digging
1: down so, deep then. Yeah,
2: that in Scandinavia, you know, they had their traditional religions and then a wave of Catholicism come in and then Protestantism come in. And I, I, I see some echoes of some of the potential religious history there.
1: Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. I didn't, th- I didn't realize that until you said something. And it is very interesting because when you're reading about the deities and they're very, very similar, but they're different. And that's what everybody in the Forbidden Lands is fighting over. They're fighting over their differences.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then aside from those, so those are all the human deities. And then there's the, um, the, the dwarf god, huge, uh, Clay, whale, you know, basically elves uh, and such have their own different little deities and some sort of side deities that are um, like spouses to another one or something like that. Um, but yeah, so it, they, it creates a pretty rich um, backstory that I I find helpful as a GM because that's stuff I can sprinkle in. Uh, and if players are interested, they'll, they'll look into it. Or if they're not, they'll just continue exploring and pillaging.
1: <laughs> that's right and that takes us into the next section which is the kin which we're gonna get we get a lot more detailed about the different kin within the forbidden lands and i have a favorite one but i want to hear um curtis what do you what's what's this next section here
2: oh yeah this is this is the good stuff where you get so each in the player's handbook they describe gave a brief overview the players like would need to know to like figure out how to role play that sort of group just basic background. And this gives sort of the wider perspective. So you're getting all the different groups of humans because they came in in like two different waves. You've got the two different kinds of half elf some that originated in the Ravenlands or the Lands, where this is set. Those are interchangeable names. And then some that originated down south in the Alderlands. Uh, so they have two different half-elf cultures, essentially, one that's more elf-associated, one that's more human-associated they've got the humans that came over not from that southern land uh but from this place out west that they only really give a few details of um as lean that i think are, is going to be the next uh setting book after uh, the bitter reach oh yeah
1: take my money free league
2: yeah uh they've got um like a lot of horse riders and stuff like that uh so as a big overview i don't want to get Again, two in the nitty-gritty of all these groups. Do you guys have anything to add with the humans?
1: No, I think that this whole section, I I think it's really great, too, because it allows you to really fill in the Forbidden Lands and the different gaps here. Personally, one of my favorites that they talk about in this whole section about Kin is the Halflings and Goblins. Um, Michael, I don't know if you had a chance to read the Halflings and Goblins section. I did not. Uh, I don't, like it's so, and it's so good in the sense that the halflings and goblins are actually related to each other and how they're related is incredible. And it's really weird, but it, it makes halflings and goblins, um, be, um, you always think of, it's just really cool. It's really weird. I love it.
2: Yeah. They're, they're basically the same. They're (laughs) basic
1: halflings and goblins are basically the same in this.
2: Ah, it's so cool.
1: That That's definitely
2: my favorite part of the kin section here. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, they also detail different orc and dwarf clans and some different groups of elves, but I'm not worried yep. about digging too deep into those.
1: Nobody cares about more groups of elves. So, um, <laughs> no, they they dig it. It's a lot of stuff here, and that kind of the kin section then leads us into the bestiary.
0: Yeah, so I'm going to cover that, um, again, in pretty high-level because one, we're already going kind of long anyways, but the base in the, area in the Game Master's Guide I think has 25 different creatures that you're going to fight. Monsters do not work the way NPCs do when it comes to combat. They have their own rules. For one, they don't get weaker as they get damaged. Like, characters their strength basically is their hit points for the most attacks the other ways to attack them Uh, but they're not going to get weaker in fact they also some of them have abilities that trigger when they get to a certain point so similar to like bloodied in like 4th edition D&D where at a certain level they become either deadlier or they might change their tactics there's just a couple monsters I want to call up one is the griffin and I'm only covering this because this is the first creature I rolled when I ran this game the first time the quick start rules for the random encounter and I tpk the entire party nice. immediately. So the way that all the monsters work, they, they, they have a monster attack section, which is based on a D six. So you can either roll randomly or you can choose what it does on each of its turns. Uh, much like Tom, when I ran this, for the quick start rules, I'm like, I'm going to follow everything. Just roll the die. So the very first thing I rolled is number five. So this is on the griffin. Uh, the griffin has a strength of 12. So it has essentially 12 hit points. Keep in mind, all of my characters together did not have a strength of 12 together. So this griffin is stronger than the entire party put together. Whirlwind strike. The griffin uses its powerful wings to create a whirlwind, knocking all adventurers within near range to the ground roll for the, the attack using six base dice against all victims, and anyone hit by the attack is also knocked to the ground. It is not possible to dodge. So the, when you roll the five or you choose the five, it basically gives you the rules for the attack. How many die you roll, any special effects. Again, like again, it knocks them to the prone. They can't be dodged. And on one of these attacks, I rolled high enough to throw someone to the ground, broke them. We then rolled a critical hit chart for blunt damage and they rolled a 65 or 66 which killed them instantly i wanted to pick out uh the dragon so again i'm the big D and D person so it makes sense to look at how a dragon works so you have small dragons and large dragons the large dragon has a strength of 48 just let that sink in for a minute 48 On their D6, uh, number one is Claw Attack, two is Dragon Roar, three is Dragon Wind, four is Fire Attack, five is Tail Action, six is Firestorm. I only cover those because it's important because I'm going to tell you what Firestorm does. The dragon rises above the adventurers in all its glory and lets out an annihilating storm of fire. All adventurers within short range are targeted by an attack with 12 face dice and a weapon damage of one non-typical damage. If the attack hits, the victims suffer subsequent damage as from a fire attack above, and the attack can only be used once per combat. So basically, I, I get to roll a six and then a four for anyone that was hit at all. It's gonna kill the entire party. Like this just that's just it's just the end. Uh, but the big one I wanted to cover is demon. Because demons play a large part of the history in the in this world. And they do something really interesting with demon. Every demon is unique. So if when you either choose to use a demon in the game, or if you roll it randomly in the, in the counter tables, there's additional charts that you're gonna roll that are gonna create this demon and make them unique from any other. So the first thing you're gonna roll is their form. So it could be like humanoid, goat, bear, wolfkin, fog, shadow, squid. Uh, their form will help determine their strength and some of their other abilities and effects. So like the shadow demon is not affected by physical weapons. Uh, then you roll for its ability. And it could be like stone skin, which gives it extra rating or no awe, uh, no eyes. Uh, so when it draws initiative, it, you draw twice and take the worst one. Or it's slimy. that can move through small openings. Then you roll for its attacks. Claws or teeth or horn or tentacles, fire. Uh, if you roll really well, it says roll three times or roll four times, because why not? Then the demon has a special ability, immune to weapons, immune to fire, immune to cold. It regenerates. And then you have its weakness. So it could be weak to water or light or cold or children or elves or dwarves or wood. And that's it. So, yeah, every time you roll a demon, it's going to be completely differently flavored and unique and I'm glad that's not that way for all the monsters because it would yes. just be too much. But again, demons play such a large role in like the, you know, what the blood mist actually is and on the portals to the, through the world. Running monsters was a lot of fun. Again, I've ran this twice now. I, every time I just rolled random encounters and when I rolled random, I just, I just followed the d6. I had a lot of fun exploring what these creatures could do in real time uh my my favorite anecdote other than the griffin tpk in the entire party which we t- kind of re- rewound and said didn't happen so we in the game 5 minutes in is there's we had a death knight and one of the death knight's abilities is that it opens up a portal to the demonscape and it's a fear attack on one person and it can actually like claw them and kill them if it rolls well enough and it just so happened that when i rolled this completely blanked, didn't do any damage whatsoever. And it was to someone who had really low wits. So we narrated that basically they just didn't notice (laughs) that they were looking this way and all this, like this demon hellscape was open behind them and all these hands were reaching out and the character completely was oblivious. And that's why it didn't affect them. And that was like the highlight of the entire adventure. And it's all because of these random roles. And I loved it.
1: Yeah. I, I love, the, I love the random rolls so much. Uh, they're so cool. Like if I have one, uh, my favorite monster here is definitely the Bloodling because if you look at the art, it is, I love creepy stuff in my games and it is so creepy. It is the Slender Man of the Forbidden Lands and I love it so much. It's so cool.
2: Yeah. I actually, I had a, uh, at one point, um, somebody who like most of the party had like gone and climbed up into like, trees to get out of, like, the initial, like, blood mist, like, layer, and one person was struggling and could not get up this tree, and, uh, so I actually just showed him the picture of, like, this is what you see coming towards you, (laughs) and they, and and I didn't show it to the rest of the party, just that one person, so they were like, guys, we can't get down there, like, this is, (laughs) that's serious (laughs) stuff, we're, we're just waiting this out.
1: Yes, so there's a lot of cool monsters here. Uh, but the next section. Artifacts. Okay. So the, one of the core concepts of Forbidden Lands is delving into these ancient places and just going out into the world to explore. How you incentivize players to do that is a lot of times with legends and artifacts. Artifacts are these rare ancient items. That have existed in the forbidden lands for years and have been lost for centuries. And there's legends out there of these artifacts. And these artifacts are things that, you know, they're just your standard magic items. They're going to give your players artifact dice to roll to make, do really cool stuff. But then also they're going to do a lot of interesting stuff in game. So, but what's so important here? About artifacts is that they are meant to be rare and they are meant to be the, the drive for entire arcs of your game. So, uh, for example, there is an every artifact has several components. One I kind of mentioned is a legend. It is this thing that an NPC could tell the players or you can just hand the players a sheet of paper with this stuff written down this is what makes this thing cool it is a story then everything has an appearance because we all want to know what these things look like and then most things have effects what they do then they have drawbacks a lot of them do and these are the the negative aspects of of using these items because they're ancient a lot of them are cursed An example of some of the artifacts that you can get, there is some gauntlets that have Wolverine claws on them, all right? And I know it sounds ridiculous, and it is kind of ridiculous, but it's cool. And there is, like – but there is, like, six paragraphs about this, about – all sorts of stuff like the Raven God and this person named Terramelda catching arrows and all this crazy lore. And it's just, it's so cool. It's in this bite-sized format that's easy to regurgitate to your players and to get them to go find these Feroxa's claws or whatnot. So that's kind of, there's this whole section. There's tons, there's tons of artifacts here. Uh Was there anything about artifacts that really kind of that you you all really liked. Magic items are near and dear to my heart. So I'm not sure how you all felt about them.
2: I thought that this was a pretty neat set. Especially some of them have like weird drawbacks. That they'll learn. Uh Like uh I think my party. I think the only ones that I've really engaged with much. Were the phantom daggers. And I <sighs> think at some point when you're using them. You start like they start taking away your empathy. Yeah, oh, yeah, every time an attack with it breaks an opponent, the user suffers one point up to their empathy score.
1: These are the edgelord daggers. I love these things. Yeah. It's like the soul of three human assassins who were sent to go kill the king of the elves, and they failed. And the king of the elves trapped their souls in three evil blades. That and they, it's just... yet they could
2: store within their wrists. So they <sighs> draw it out like Spider-Man style. Oh, it's, it's,
1: it's stuff like that that makes me really like this. But the encounters is the next section. And the encounters is, it really ties into the journeys. So whenever your characters enter into a new hex, you roll on the encounter table. And if the characters are scouting, they can potentially see what the encounter is. So it is a big old table. You roll it. Everything here is, it says D66. That's two D6s. You roll your 2d6s, you see what they rolled up, you look and see where you currently are, whether you're in which part of the land. Are you in the plains? Are you in the forest? Are you in the mountains, on the lake? And then there's a number. And then you flip to that number in the book, and it's going to give you, here's the encounter. And these are not just encounters like, roll 2d4 goblins and one dragon. It's Now, these are all weird encounters such as uh one of my favorite ones is you come across a caravan band that has been ambushed and everybody's lying around bloody and as you start to pick your way through the corpses they rise up but they're not undead they're actually a bunch of bandits who painted themselves and now they've captured you it's just like it's these really cool things or you run across an elf and an orc who you think are fighting in the woods, but actually they're just reenacting ancient battles for fun because they're a bunch of thespians. And it's just stuff like that, that really can make the whole forbidden lands feel really nuanced and interesting. So I love the encounters. I love that the bitter reach adds a ton more encounters because that's what I really like. So
2: yeah, I've the encounters here, honestly, some of the, Best of, uh, I would never want to just roll a random chart of, well, here are the monsters you find after going through these. Like, it's just it, a lot of emergent play happening and they give you just enough to go on and then you have to deal with, like, so, you know, sure, you're taking this one modular little encounter, but that's going to grow into stuff. <laughs> like, half oh. of these are really, uh, growing. Like, the, the, my favorite is the Demon Baker. Uh, oh yeah who is um creating these uh little uh uh, this halfling (laughs) that's making baking and bringing his uh like gingerbread cookies to life essentially yeah gingerbread and that's a full encounter yeah and and, well and it's a multi uh multi-step encounter so the more you encounter him you're encountering different versions and my party ended up well, one of them really wanted to stay and keep the magical oven for himself uh and and break his own army of gingerbread men essentially um and another one just really desperately wanted a one of the gingerbread men as a pet essentially,
1: yeah, that's a good point, Curtis, because what it says in here is like if you roll like let's say you did the like the demon baker, you rolled on that let's say you roll it again it's not that you just repeat the encounter you now to it and so it incentivizes players to go out into the wilderness in order to discover these things it's very it's it's basically this is kind of like pokemon for rpgs you're just roaming the wilderness finding these cool random encounters and you want to catch them all like you want to do them all like it's very cool also a lot of moral quandaries here in the encounters they are not very simple such as you number 32 is rats you're like oh what is rats well, guess what? A halfling baby is trapped and you can either save it from getting eaten by rats or get attacked by orcs at the same time or you can run away. And so there's these very... It's a—it's very intense. That takes us to the last section, which is adventure sites. So adventure sites are the adventures in this game. In a standard game, you maybe have adventures or modules. In Forbidden Lanes, you have adventure sites. What they are is... It's an entire adventure encapsulated into one zone. So you have the three that they lay out. You have villages, castles, and dungeons. Each one of these sections then has a bunch of random tables to help you as the dungeon master create your own village to create your own dungeon or to create your own castle. And then you now have these adventure sites and there's all these NPCs that you can add into the adventure sites. There are these random happenings that you can add in these adventure sites. And there's lots of loot and treasure that you can add in here. And one of the cool things is all the way back at the beginning where Michael was talking about prepping for this game, what it recommends for prepping advent uh Forbidden Lands is to make sure that you always have one village, one castle, and one dungeon ready. And that's and there's tools here to allow you to roll that up on the spot, which is cool. But it's also very simple to make it ahead of time. Personally, I think villages are my favorite adventure site here because I don't like dungeon delving. And I like interacting with all these weird NPCs in the Forbidden Lands. Curtis, what what do you think about adventure sites here?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've, I think they're really well done. I really enjoy the way they... Um again it's it's it it's a way a before your group gets a stronghold they can maybe if they keep good relations in the town uh they can stay there i played well i introduced uh my group to the hollows
1: the village
2: yeah in a game area which is the village in this book um which is uh a neat little town with a weird little uh like rivalry over alcohol going on and lots of fun like Dynamics there. I played at a catacomb. Uh, the only time I've gotten to, to play this game as a player and not as a, a GM, I, uh, played a game, uh, where we went through the Weatherstone,
0: uh, castle. That's the one in the quick start. So the both times I've ran and I've used Weatherstone. Oh, okay. Cool. Oh, it's
1: so cool. Like the, yeah, Weatherstone is one of this game includes three pre-generated adventure sites and Weatherstone's the castle. And it is just, there is full art for all of these adventure sites. And they are so gorgeous.
2: And uh, it's, and even like what I love about all of these are, even if you just want to take one little aspect and just build on that, find the thing you like and, and just go from there. Don't, you don't have to use it as presented. Just take the pieces.
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: That's my style. But I, I haven't read, including in the, I haven't made my way through bitter reach yet. Um, but between this and the Spire of Quetzal book, which is, uh, their first sort of just set of, uh, encounters and the Raven's purge, which is a campaign. But again, all in these modular adventure sites that you could just pick one up and not even do a campaign. You can just yep. include it as a place.
1: I don't think I've read a
2: place that I wouldn't use.
1: Exactly. I, I think that's what's so cool about them. I want to use all the adventure sites because they're all very unique in the, uh, they are really great the bitter reach has i mean that has so many great adventure sites including a castle that is on a boat that is full of goblins <laughs> and it is it's it's incredible it's on a it's a on a frozen lake and it is that's it's super cool uh but that's that is the major chunk of this this system this is we've covered a lot player's handbook and game master guide and one of the other things that i all of this content that we've talked about is you can literally pick this up from the forbidden from free leagues website this box is only like 40 dollars, which is a steal considering that it's like it's two hard covered books a full map with stickers and an awesome box so It's a good box set. So, yeah. um, All right. So now it is moment of truth time. We've talked a lot.
0: A lot. This is by far our longest review ever, (sighs) which, which is why, again, we did this because we wanted to do Bitter Reach. And I realized there's no way to talk about Bitter Reach without giving a foundation of this game or it won't make sense. So I apologize if this was longer than people were expecting, both to you, my co-hosts, and in the audience. But I wanted to do justice to this game because I actually really like it.
1: Absolutely. So but now we're going to scientifically judge this game. And we love judging stuff. All right. So we we have we, basically, we have three criteria. We have the art and design. We have the fluff. And then we have the crunch. Okay? They will all be ranked in a C-scale to an A-plus scale which C minus is hard pass. A plus is this is all that matters now. Okay. All right. So art and design. Give it to us. What's your rating?
2: All right. So this of the three, I think is going to be probably my lowest. Okay. I'm not the biggest fan of the um oldie style ink uh, drawings. Okay. I love the cover and would have loved for that to be the, you know, the primary style. So but I do think the layout was good. I like the little borders. I love the actual physical quality of the books. The map and all that is great. So that also helps balance it. So my lowest is probably going to be B.
1: Okay. Um, I'm going with A plus. Okay. So all right. <laughs> because all right. I like the old style. First off, let me explain something. I'm the person that sits at the table. And pulls out a fountain pen and a, a leather notebook. And so this is like, this is my aesthetic. Like I love this so much. It feels very rough hewn and old and ancient. And it's, it's, it's very up my alley. And also, like you said, Curtis, the quality of this is thick paper. This is a very nice hardcover. There is a ribbon in these books to to mark my place yeah this is again a plus
0: all right so i'm very much echoing curtis here i really loved the the box cover i think it's gorgeous the interior art it's all consistent it's definitely of one style and it helps sort of sell that world but i wasn't a fan of it i thought it was just okay but the quality of the components the book the map the stickers so overall i'm giving this a b as well Whatever.
2: Uh, all
1: right. So, okay. So now we're going to go to the fluff, Michael.
0: So fluff, uh, I won't bear the lead is A plus the, this game, the, the story of the game is cool, but every page of this game inspired me in some way. Every encounter is amazing. All the locations are amazing. I just, everything I read, I was like, okay, I want to make, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to use this. I want to use that. I could not ask for more other than just more pages oh. because each page was glorious.
1: Okay, so I'm going to give it an A plus as well for a similar similar way, Michael, because what's I give anything a good rating when I enjoy it. All right, a lot of people think that RPG books are hard to read, and I will agree with them. They are can be so hard to read. These books are page turners. Like I read these books cover to cover, and I loved them. The Game Masters guy specifically, I'm just like, oh, this is this is this is awesome. I was just, I, I wanted to read it more. And to me, that's what if I'm like flipping pages, and if I want to consume your product because I find the story interesting, that's an A
2: plus. Yeah, I'm also gonna echo the A plus. I don't typically run in exactly a setting that's presented like I don't run D&D in the in the forbidden lands. I or no sorry in the what's even called in D&D? Forgot, well, forgot- ah, who knows. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, exactly. You forgot them. <laughs> oh, there we go. Um but uh I I just that lore has zero interest but some, this managed to really keep my interest. And I got pretty invested to the point where you know, with the bitter reach and coming expansions, I want to know more about the world uh <laughs> i'm I'm interested in it just for its own sake, even though I know probably none of the players I ever run it for are going to be as invested in that setting as I am yes, so yeah, I just it it's rare for the the setting of something to really invest get me invested that much.
1: yes, very cool. last one crunch. The rules how would you rank the rules here? did you did you like them? Do you want to engage with them? Do you um, think that there's too much but how would you rank the crunch here?
2: I I this hits a sweet spot for me. Mm-hmm. It, it is uh, I, I uh, especially when Michael was running through the combat description I was like okay maybe it's a little crunchier than I thought, but I think the rules work together well. And I think that through using things like their proprietary dice, which they want you to buy and they can make more money, but they actually genuinely help (laughs) at the table. I've played with some people who were trying to play with their own dice and they're like, oh, wait, which color did I use for this piece? So using their dice really does help. Um, I think moderate the crunch along with the initiative cards. and It comes with action cards that you can see and remind yourself what you can do. So I think that helps keep things on track. I think it's an elegant design that you're using a very similar core mechanic throughout. It kind of reminds me of like the um, FFG Star Wars and Genesis stuff in that way. So decent number of rules, but I think they're really well done and they cover what the game is about, which is the biggest thing for me.
1: Okay. So what's your rating? Then? Oh, did I say
2: uh, A plus? Yeah.
1: A plus. Okay. So I'm going to actually, I'm going to actually, um, change up the format because I'm the one talking and can do that. So Michael, you're going to go next. Um, what did you, what did you think about the crunch here?
0: So I do think that it all works well together. I think the game feels very much like two parts. There's the exploration part and then there's the combat encounter parts, but everything kind of still works together. It flows together. I enjoy that. It's still crunchier for me yep. than I would prefer. I think just some of the terminology could be different would help, but I'm going to say it's an A minus, which on our scale is I love this. So it's still good. I still like it. I still want to engage in it. I'm looking forward to playing this more, but I can't give it an A plus. It's, it, there's just too many parts that are a little fiddly for me.
1: Okay. I totally, I get, I get what you're saying there. It's for me. It's, um, the, the melee combat can feel a little bit cumbersome at first, but once you've, what I found is as, I had to reread a couple sections because I didn't get it at first. And then I had to go talk to somebody who also plays this game. And I was like, ah, what what is up with this? They explained it. And so I had to go back and I had to reread it. And, and then when I got it, I was just, I was like, wow. You really did it, you really did it, free League um, and then they had the then the exploration rules, and these rules I want to engage with them, and so a plus all right, so um, I like this game a whole lot. um I get what Michael's saying, I totally do it's reading them it's a lot different Mutant year zero is can take some can take some time to get used to, but once you get it. It just flows so well, and it's so simple and so elegant at the table.
0: Overall, looking at art, fluff, and crunch together, Curtis, what would you give this overall as a? Ah, uh, the interior art can't drag it down that much. It's still an A plus. <laughs> yeah, all right. a. I would give it an A, not an A plus, but an A. All
1: right, I'll give it an A plus too. You know, I'm surprised, surprised. You know, I I know you all thought I was going to give it like a B or something, but A plus. Yeah. I would say that that you know, I would say that we would we would say to go buy this game
0: uh yeah this would definitely be on my buy list uh, there will be links in our show notes to the free league store we do not get any cuts or percentages this is just make it easier for you to go if you want otherwise just google free league press and you'll go straight to the store if nothing else get the quick start i'm telling you it's a 154 page pdf it's amazing and then then once you play it you'll want to go about the, the box set
1: yes um this is very cool that's the forbidden lands it's a good system it's different if you want to play fantasy but you want to do it a little bit differently, I would highly, highly recommend checking out, uh, forbidden lands. And other than that, Michael, what else you got for us?
0: Uh, the only thing that says that we're going to be doing a trial of this. Uh, there's no, it's not scheduled. So it could be weeks or months before it comes out, but we're going to do an actual play through the quick start adventure. So you'll be, if you're interested, you'll actually be able to hear us playing the game and interacting with the rules. So please, will be on lookout for that. We are going to do the bitter reach. review sometime in the near future. And a Catacomb Kickstarter. September 1st, baby. Check it out. Going virtual this year, but you can pre-buy badges for 2021 and really help us out. So, uh, I want as many people as possible to please come check that out and support us if you can. Curtis, thank you so much for joining us, buddy. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks for
2: having me. Um, I'll definitely be virtually at a Catacomb this year. Uh, and, uh, Fantastic. yeah, if, if people are curious, on uh, more, uh, Forbidden Land stuff, you can get some more perspectives on it and maybe some, uh, less positive ones from a couple of our players. If you check out Split the Party Podcast, episode 112, Big Damn Zeros. Okay. Fantastic.
1: <laughs> we will, we will, yes, we'll link that in our show notes. Definitely go check, out, check them out. Anyway, um, this is Tom. You can follow me at Bezcar tom on Twitter. And then Michael, close us out.
0: You can find me at The RPG Academy. One more time, Curtis, where can people find you and your podcast? Uh, so our podcast
2: is wherever. Podcasts are freely sold and uh, at at Politicfish is my Twitter and at split party pod for the podcast. Excellent.
0: So until next time, remember if you're having fun, you're doing it right. You're doing it right. (laughs) Thanks. We'll see you next time. See ya. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby